Father, we thank you that you don't just give us community with one another, but you draw us into community with yourself. Not just to command us around or tell us what to do, but because you desire to share your life with us. And thank you that you speak to us and that your words are means by which you pull us closer, uh, you form and shape us, and you share who you are and your goodness and grace with us. And so would you give us ears to hear all that you have to say in Jesus' name. So over the past few years, there's been many different studies that have been done that are coming to the conclusion that we're living in a burnout culture, that anxiety is on the rise, depression is on the rise, frustration is on the rise, confusion is on the rise, fatigue is on the rise. And we feel this even in our own lives as we look at we and what we experience. And this story isn't something that's just new to us, even though the surveys are coming up new. But really, this is a story that is as old as humanity itself. That to be human means to, to face these challenges and these difficulties from the outside, but also from the inside. There are difficulties and challenges and things that will stretch us. And so as we continue to track with Israel's story from long ago, what we're going to see is as God has led them out of Egypt and out of slavery and is leading them into this place of abundance that they themselves are experiencing things that are stretching and pulling on them. Things that are leading to frustration, fear, sadness, despair, confusion. And God, in loving these people and moving towards them, gives them these two gifts that we are going to be looking at this morning. He gives them these rhythms that they are meant to live by. Rhythms that are meant to impart light to them in the midst of a very chaotic world. Gifts to broken people in a broken world. And what these two rhythms are, are going to be rhythms of rest, and rhythms of remembrance. But as we've seen in Exodus overall, we're remembering that Exodus isn't just about God's work in Israel, but it's about a much bigger work that God is doing that we ourselves are a part of. And so it's these two rhythms that we're going to consider what they mean for us even here and now. And so let's start with this first rhythm, this gift that God gives them and God gives us, and it is this rhythm of rest. So I don't know if you've seen it, but over the past few weeks, there's been a flurry of articles about this quiet quitting. And what quiet quitting is, basically at a workplace when an employee looks at all that they're being asked to do, and they're, they're noticing things that are, that are beyond the norm, that are beyond what they're adequately being paid for, that are beyond expectations, and they're quietly quitting those things. They're saying, I'm not, I'm not being paid for those things, and that's beyond the boundary of what I'm willing to give, and so I'm just going to quietly stop that. And I don't bring that up to, to support or to attack it in any way, but simply to really draw a contrast between some of the freedoms that we experience today and what Israel was being brought out of. 
So under Pharaoh, as slaves, Israel has no freedom to look at what they are doing and say, we're going to draw some, some boundaries around what you're asking us to do. So uh, those bricks that you want us to make and those buildings that you want us to construct, we just feel like you are not adequately paying us for those things. And so we're just simply not going to do those. And you can find somebody else to do your labor. For Israel, there's no adequate pay. There's no such thing as work-life balance of, of an employer caring for you and for your family. There's no such thing as days off. There's no weekends. There's no stopping. It's just labor endlessly. It's you doing what Pharaoh and the powers that be want you to do. There's no quitting of any kind. They're trapped. But what God does is God rescues them out of this situation, out of this harsh slavery, and as he brings them to himself, there's this continual message that he's saying to his people, I'm not Pharaoh. That's not how I am treating My relationship with you is not all about how I can take advantage of you and get the most out of you with giving you the littlest and smallest in return. But it's a God who says, I am giving of myself to you and for your good. And so when here it comes to this idea of rest, rest is not just something that God offers his people as an option. It's actually something that he commands them to take. Think about that. A God that is commanding his people to stop and to rest. Verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox, your donkey may have rest, the son of your servant woman, the alien, that you may be refreshed. That Hebrew word Sabbath simply means to Stop physically. Stop mentally. Stop emotionally. Slow down. And, and, and let healing and refreshment take place. God knows the difficulties that Israel is going to face as a people from out here. And God knows the difficulties that Israel is going to face in here. And God looks at them and says, I want you to rest you to rest. I want those in your household to rest. I want your animals to rest. I actually want the land itself to have rest. There's something different that God is presenting about himself that runs against the grain of Pharaoh and everything else that they've experienced. So, unlike Matt Torrance, I'm not a long-distance runner. <laughs> But I have been doing some longer runs lately. Longer runs for me are like 8 to 10 miles, not 25 to 35 miles that um, he enjoys doing. He says he enjoys it. I would believe him all the time. <laughs> but going really short runs, I don't have to do anything to uh, prepare. I just kind of go out there. Shorter runs being like two months, three months. I can just go out there, run, and I'm done. But if I'm, if I'm going in for one of these longer runs, in order for me to, to actually make it through, what I have to do is I have to fill up this giant uh, bottle of water, pour it Gatorade, and I'll take it to this place along the trail and I'll hide it. Um, and I have about a mile and a half loop that I'll do. 
And so after a mile and a half of running, I'm getting really tired. And so I know that at the end of this loop that there's a water bottle waiting, waiting there right for me. And so when I get close to it, uh, my pace starts to slow and I start to walk. I get to this water, refresh myself, take deep breaths, get myself ready and go again. The end of that next mile and a half, the same thing happens. What I've seen is that in order for me to be able to run these longer distances, there has to be this pattern or this cycle of slowing down and being refreshed. I can't just go out there and run endlessly. I've got to find times where there is times to take a breath, times to be re-energized, times to get, get nutrients back into my body. God has designed humanity. He's coded into us and into all creation this cycle of rest. This cycle that we are meant to follow of renewal and, and strengthening and refreshing. But so often, everything in our lives goes against that natural cycle. And the motto of our culture is go more, do more with less. And it's this frantic pace. We are creatures, which just simply means we we have limitations. Uh, we'd like to think that we don't have limitations, but we are limited in, in our physical strength. We're limited in our thoughts. We're limited in what we can know, and what we can love, and what we can do with our time and energy. We have these real limitations, and, and God is guiding his people to living within these limitations in a way that causes them to flourish and grow. But just because God commands rest for this people doesn't mean that it's easy. I can imagine them hearing this command to slow down and stop as really good news as they're wandering through the wilderness. That they get to stop from all this traveling, from all this work, and just slow down. That's good news. But I can also see it being very different when they get into the land and, and they are tending and working their own land. Which means if they're not working, they're not eating. It's their livelihood. Everything in their lives and the lives of their families depend upon this farm working. So when God says, one day at seven, I want you to stop. I imagine there's a rub against the natural grain of what their hearts want to do. So stopping is also an act of faith. Stopping is this act that says, my life is in your hands, and I have to trust you. Stopping is this, is this act that deepens in our lives this dependence upon the Lord who made us and provides for us. I love what Barbara Dawn says. It's in a quote on the front of your worship guide. She says, a great benefit of Sabbath keeping is that we learn to let God take care of us. Not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. To a weary people in a weary world, God gives the gift of rest. These rhythms of rest that are meant to be worked into our lives. But there's another set of rhythms that God also gives for the good of His people, and that is rhythms of remembrance. So according to the American Psychological Association, trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event. 
could be an accident, could be the loss of a loved one, a violent attack, a natural disaster. Many of you know personally what the experience of trauma is like. And often when you've experienced trauma, there are certain things that are called triggers. Things that will trigger and take you back to the event to almost re-experience. It could be going to a certain place. It could be a certain sound. It could be a certain smell. It could even be a certain person that when confronted with this, it takes you back to this terrible experience and you relive it in some type of way. God knows that for good and for bad, our, our bodies our memories, our emotions, our experiences are all intertwined in a messy and beautiful way. When it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it's bad. I want you to think about what we see here, these three pilgrimage festivals. I want you to think of them as a kind of reverse trauma. So instead of, of linking bad triggers and bad and, and bad tastes and bad smells and bad sounds to bad experiences, God is giving his people something different. He is giving them tastes and sights and smells and experiences that will draw them back to something incredibly good that has happened. You see how that works in reverse of God, what God is trying to work into his people's lives? The purpose is to reinforce something positive that God has done and something positive that the people have experienced. The first of these is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So for seven days, the people eat bread with no yeast or no leaven, which they wouldn't normally have done. So as they're doing this, walking through these strange rituals and offering sacrifices and giving thanks, what it does is it takes them back to the exodus in Egypt where they ate unleavened bread and God broke the power of Egypt and delivered them out of slavery. So that as they are eating and feasting and sharing communally in this meal, God is deepening in them this story of who he is for them. As they take simple things like food and drink, God is wiring these things together to remind them and shape them about who He is for them. The second festival is called the Feast of Harvest. And this happens at the beginning of the harvest season. In an agricultural time and place, um, crops were a big deal. So they had spent time uh, preparing the land and sowing and watering and tending. And now was the time where the first of their fruits would be ready. And what the people do is they bring some of these first fruits on this pilgrimage and they offer them up with gladness, with thanksgiving, and they share and offer sacrifices and sing songs, and it's a party. During the first few weeks of, of COVID, Andy, uh, my youngest son, and I, we, we wanted to start a garden in our backyard. And so we called upon our good friend, Jim Garber, to help make it happen. And so it took a lot of work all along the way. 
So Jim helped us, he helped us clear the grass. He helped us till the ground. He helped us build a fence. He helped us choose the seeds. He helped us plant the seeds. He helped us water the plants. He helped us get rid of the weeds. He helped us fight insects and animals and all sorts of different experiences. We went through it. And on the day when, there was a day that came when the first of the crop was ready. And so Andy and I went out and we were so excited about it. And so we, we began picking some of this crop and putting it in the basket. So there were some tomatoes that were ready. There were some squash and zucchini that were ready. There were some zucchini that was ready. So we took this, this basket um, and we went over to Jim's and we gave it to him. This was not our effort to say, thank you for all that you've done and here's your payment. <laughs> uh, this is just us making this transactional and giving you the results that you deserve. It was us saying, thank you for what you have helped us to do. Without you, none of this is possible. And yes, we were giving some of our precious crop, but it was not this moment of reluctant joy. It was not this, it was not this moment of reluctant sadness or grief. But it was this moment of joy where we're sharing something that we helped make possible. Every time the people of Israel are gathering together to offer this first fruits, it's not them paying back God in, in some transactional way. Nor is it this sad, reluctant experience, but it's one of joy, of celebration, where they say to the Lord, who has done so much for them, we could not have done any of this without you. All of this that we experience, that I enjoy, that sustains my family, that sustains our community, comes from your hand. That's true. And in God working that deeper into their lives, He's bringing them closer into a life-giving relationship with Himself. And the last feast, this feast of a gathering, happens at the very end when, when all, the, all the crop has been brought in and they bring some more of it to the Lord. And they celebrate again. And they offer sacrifices again. And it's saying the same message. Not just that you have been faithful and have started a good work. But it's saying you, you've done it all. Everything that we've enjoyed. You have kept us alive. It, it, it's so easy for us to go into the grocery store. And to, just to think that we are self-sufficient. In some ways they were in a much better position than we are. Because they were able to see tangibly. This is from the Lord. And we return to Him with gratitude. And every time they share these feasts, something deeper gets woven into their hearts. This good news of who God is for them. And what He's doing. And the hope is that these cycles, not just one year, but year after year after year. Think about even growing up in one of these households and every year maybe you travel with your family to Jerusalem and you participate in this. So that by the end of your life, you've had 75 times where you have gone and you have remembered these cycles of remembrance shaping you to be a certain kind. Those are gifts that God gives them that have implications for us. But we have to also realize that we're not ancient Israel. Uh, we're not at Mount Sinai receiving these laws and these, these festivals and commands don't 
have a one-to-one -one correlation with us. And so what do they need for us? And I want to close with just a few thoughts here. These, I want you to listen to how the New Testament reflects on some of these ceremonies. Look at, listen to Colossians 3. These ceremonies are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And let me translate that. These, these ceremonies were gifts in and of themselves meant to teach particular lessons and give particular experiences for the good of people. But it's more than that. They are signs that are pointing forward to Jesus. Not just saying this is all there is, but they are signs saying there's something about Sabbath rest that's pointing to Jesus. There's something about feasting and first fruits and unleavened bread and Passover meals that points forward to Jesus. And from our vantage point looking back, we're able to see how these magnify and show us with greater clarity and beauty who Jesus is for us and the greater rescue that he's done. Which is why we hear these words from Jesus that were read in our New Testament lesson. When Jesus said, come to me, every one of you who is weary and burdened, and I will do what? I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my load is light, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying in a strange way, I am your Sabbath rest. Find rest in who I am and what I have done for you. Nobody likes to feel fear. Nobody likes to feel anxiety and grief and confusion and frustration and guilt and shame. But we feel all of those. We all know what those taste like in our lives. And we all are looking for ways to take those burdens and push them off somehow onto something else. And Jesus, as he enters into, into humanity, he is looking at all the brokenness that we face and all the brokenness that is in us. And he's, he's saying, come to me. I want all of that to be brought to me and lay on my shoulders so that I might carry that weight for you. So that in the face of fear, Jesus is our peace. In the face of our weakness, Jesus is our strength. In the face of suffering and pain, Jesus is our comfort. In the face of our guilt and failings, Jesus is our Forgiveness. In the face of our sadness, Jesus is our hope. And in the face of our inevitable death, Jesus is our everlasting life. All those things I described are things we need rest from. And Jesus says, I am rest for you. And the question for each of us is, are we coming to Jesus for that rest? Are we turning to Him? Not just once, but this, this lifestyle of turning and trusting. The Bible's language for this is simply repentance and faith. Every day we are triggered. Triggered with our fears. Triggered with our failings. Triggered with our weaknesses. 
But the question that we all face is what do we do when we are triggered? Do we double down and try harder? Do we just go inward on ourselves in this vortex that's a bottomless dark pit? Do we lash out at others? What, what do we do with those triggers? And what my hope and encouragement for you in very practical ways this week is when you sense that, ask yourself, what would it look like for me to turn to Jesus? How do these triggers serve even as signs that point me to Jesus? What does it look like for him to be my rest in the midst of whatever weariness I face? And what we have to see also is that the rest that Jesus offers of him taking all those burdens on himself would come at a great, great cost. That Passover feast they celebrated, it pointed forward to a greater feast with a greater lamb, making a greater sacrifice. Which is why every week, and we're going to say it in just a few moments, we're going to repeat this, Christ our Passover has the what? Sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us what? Let us eat the feast. God gives us this meal to, to press these realities deeper into us, that he has given us rest. It came at a great cost and was given out of great love so that we could join together in this next song and sing these words. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I'm finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. You bid me gaze upon you and your beauty. It fills my soul. For by your transforming power you have made me whole. Let's pray. God, we come to you through your Son to find the rest that we long for. Deepen this good news into our hearts and help us to live in it and live out of it. For your glory and for our joy. In your name.